So look, I just found out this morning that Elijah Blumov, the creator of Versecraft, when he makes his show, he just sits down with a script and reads it all out at once and doesn't edit at all. So I was listening to his show last night, really great episode about Hart Crane, which is very informative and well-researched and great. And about halfway through, I, I had this realization like, this is one take. This is a single unedited take. And he confirmed that for me this morning. And I'm furious. I don't need this. I don't need younger, more talented podcasters snapping at my heels. I've got enough going on. I'm sorry, Elijah, you're just going to have to stop making your show. Like, it's too stressful for me, personally. And, and I just, I can't handle it. Just not to get too meta, but for reference, when I make 30-odd minutes of audio, I'm doing about 300 cuts. It takes about three times as long to edit the episode as it does to record it for me. But, you know, whatever. More seriously, I do want to do a couple of shout-outs before we get into things here. I want to let everybody know that the Melbourne School of Literature is going to start running a couple of poetry courses in August. 22nd of August, Emily Russo is going to be teaching on metaphysical poetry. And on the 24th of August, Elena Gomez is going to start a course called Marxist Adventures in Poetry. They both sound excellent. You don't have to be based in Melbourne to enrol. They're all being run by Zoom. So yeah, if you want to check that out, I will link to them. And I also wanted to let everybody know well ahead of time that on Sunday, the 27th of August at six o'clock at Sappho Books, I will be launching Louise Carter's book, Golden Repair. Wow, it feels so good to say that. Uh, yeah, come along if you want to see me do, um, I'm thinking like kind of an anti-launch speech. Like I think launch speeches uh, can make you, sometimes make you feel aware of how much your feet hurt when you're standing up at a poetry launch. I'm going to I'm gonna try for something a little bit different to that. I'm going to try to just uh, get in, get out, and just make sure everybody in the room knows how great this fucking book is and that they need to leave with a copy. There's going to be cupcakes. There's, uh, there may well be glitter. Uh, I may well be wearing glitter. I'm definitely going to be wearing sequins. And uh, yeah, love to see you there. All right, let's get into it. Even though I feel kind of paralyzed thinking about Elijah making his show. It's, it's very stressful. It's very stressful. What I wanted to talk to you about today, I did have a lot of fun the other week doing that episode called Vintage Gossip, which was just basically looking back at a particular period in Australian poetry history around the late 1960s through to the early 1970s and some of the, the mudslinging and the back and forth that was going on at the time and how people were connected to each other, how people were rivals so I had a lot of fun doing that, and I've also been just absolutely loving reading the Gwen Harwood biography that I'm still working my way through, My Tongue is My Own, by Anne-Marie Priest. As I think I said last week, really um, keen to get in touch with Anne-Marie and 
talk to her about this book because it seems like such an achievement. And it has been kind of pulling me further back in history to this time in the 1950s and early 60s when Howard was writing and all the connections she had with other poets around her, Vincent Buckley, Jim McCauley, A.D. Hope. And so that finally got me to sit down and look at this book, which, like so many other books in my house, I have been avoiding for a while, even though I bought it with uh, a, lot of, a lot of enthusiasm. It's a book called The Literature of Australia, um, plain and simple, put out by Penguin in 1964, so around the time that Harwood had, I think she just published her first book around that time, uh, and it's edited by a guy called Jeffrey Dutton. In the biography, in the Harwood biography, Dutton is described as the worst famous poet in Australia, not by Gwen, but by a different poet and academic uh, called Alexander Craig. But I, I actually had never heard of him before, but I picked up the book. I really just bought it because it has an essay by Vincent Buckley on Patrick White. And I thought that might be interesting, but then I realized it's got all these other treasures in it that I haven't got to yet. There's an essay on Judith Wright by Max Harris. There's an essay on Kenneth Slesser by Chris Wallace Crabb. There's another survey of the Ern Malley poems, which I really should get to. It's It's got everything in it. Uh, just as usual, haven't quite found the time to sit down and read it. I I know I go on about this all the time, about how I want to read more and how I'm not reading, and I know it's probably very boring to listen to, but it it worries me and it frustrates me. And I, as much as I am grateful to have a good job that pays me money, I am resentful of the fact that so much of my week is just gear shifting in and out of like this bizarre professional mode that has nothing to do with me or what I care about. Anyway, that's a conversation for another time. Talking about this book, The Literature of Australia, I want to zero in on one little passing comment that I found in this essay by a poet called Evan Jones. Evan Jones actually only died last year. He used to teach at the University of Melbourne. And his essay in this collection is just called Australian poetry since 1920. It's a a very kind of um, sceptical survey, actually. It seems like Evan Jones doesn't really like anyone, (laughs) doesn't really like any of his contemporaries, but he starts back in Sydney in 1920, and the first person he brings up, quoting Kenneth Slessor, is none other than Norman Lindsay. This really surprised me. So this is from the opening paragraph. He's quoting Slessor, who says, It is a paradox indeed, but nonetheless a fact, that Norman Lindsay has exercised more influence and produced more effect on numbers of this country's poets than any other single individual in Australia's history. Norman Lindsay's attitude to poets and poetry has had more to do with a great deal of Australian poetry than is generally realised or admitted. It is beyond question that the majority of Australian writers, and especially the poets, have accepted him from the beginning, not only as an artist, but as the fountainhead of Australian culture in our time. 
so I read that and I was like, wait, Norman Lindsay, like the guy who painted all those topless women. What? <laughs> Why is he important? I, I had no idea about any of this. So uh, Evan Jones goes on to explain that properly. Apparently, Lindsay wrote this manifesto called Creative Effort. And Jones talks a bit about that and he says, Plowing through the turgid and random aphorisms of Lindsay's major manifesto, Creative Effort, one might well wonder how this came about. Yes, I do wonder how this came about. Undoubtedly, it was partly because of the enthusiasm and encouragement with which he greeted young disciples and quasi-disciples. It was also, undoubtedly, due to the enormous arrogance and assurance that he breathed into them. The artist, he said, transcends petty existence. Yeah, so he sounds um, exactly like I would have expected Norman Lindsay to sound. And look, I don't know exactly how true this depiction of Australian poetry in Sydney in the 1920s is, but it it does ring kind of true to me as this depiction of a scene with a very um, self-important guy at the centre of it who has creative power, who people don't necessarily like, but who people are willing to follow for their own gains so they can kind of leech off that power a little bit or gain his approval so they can get the next rung up on the ladder. Jones goes on to say, Lindsay's initiates had the assurance that they had uncommon minds. Apparently, Lindsay's view was uh, the Western cultural heritage had fled a sickened Europe and a vulgar America for these shores, for Australia. So he, uh, he clearly saw himself at the centre of a scene that existed in a place and a time that was uh, a cultural centre of the world, maybe the cultural centre of the world. It's a, it's a pretty unfamiliar attitude. No matter where you go in Australian history, that's, that's not an attitude that many people hold or have held. I don't know, maybe Baz Luhrmann? I don't know. Um, so weirdly, Norman Lindsay was apparently the centre of this poetry scene at this moment in Sydney. But then there were these other people around the scene who were not as bought in to his approach. You know, Lindsay was very into... Um, as you can kind of get this sense from looking at his paintings, but he was, um, I, I have no good way to put this. He liked, uh, having sex <laughs> and he liked, uh, he liked drinking and he liked partying. And I guess if you were at Lindsay's house, you were probably guaranteed some kind of, um, sexual escapade, uh, Look, you know, I'm I am so confident in saying that that probably wasn't great for the women involved. Um, but that was his that was his scene that he created around him. So Evan Evan Jones uh, outlines this in uh, a little bit more of a, a gentler way. There is no quicker way to catch the spirit of this than to look at Lindsay's own illustrations in Vision, his magazine that he was editing. Satyrs with dryads dryads with women, women with fawns, 
and wilder variations involving centaurs, mermaids, fish and harpies, as well as men and women. At first, these drawings amuse with their neat depiction of the gaily lecherous leer or the look of surprised innocence. Then they begin to bore and at last repel. Their emphasis is heavily sexual, for Lindsay laid great stress on the bounties of sexual delight. So people like Slessor were on the, the outside of this and they, they were kind of looking at this scene and they were not convinced. Evan Jones says that Slessor and people like him felt that they couldn't participate in this scene that emphasised so much um, sexuality and partying, but they felt guilty about it. They felt like maybe there was something wrong with them. As you would expect with a setup like this, with a scene like this, bad poets got famous. And when I say bad poets, what I mean by that is poets whose work has been shown by history to be pretty negligible. The example that Evan Jones points to is a guy called Hugh McRae. Here's a little taste of McRae's work that he was writing to impress Norman Lindsay. That was a hare, no satyr as you thought, that leaped behind us when we crossed the stile. How pale your face by the March moon caught, and paler for your smile. Why needs your timid heart flutter so? My faith, where does this teasing ribbon run? Provocative? And what a mulish bow. There now, tis all undone. And, and Slessor too was writing poetry with the explicit aim of impressing Norman Lindsay in particular. He has a poem called Earth Visitors, which is dedicated to Norman Lindsay. Even if he felt like he couldn't get with this whole approach to life that Lindsay was uh, promoting, he still felt like he, he had to have this guy's approval. He had to write in a way that would impress Lindsay so that he could, so that he could get ahead, essentially. And this is where the Slessor story gets really interesting. So Evan Jones says, Slessor was a poet without direction, other than that gratuitously offered by Lindsay, McRae, and Vision. That his poetry came to have a great deal more direction and force was not due to any deliberate breakthrough. Probably no poet can or will offer a cut-and-dried answer to the question, why do you write poetry? But probably few would disown knowledge of the matter as disarmingly as Slessor did in a radio talk reprinted in Southerly in 1948. I love this because it's basically quoting from a podcast. Maybe somebody will do that with Poetry Says one day. Maybe I will be in the Penguin Book of Australian Literature uh, 2054. So this is Slessor from the radio interview. He says, I don't propose to discuss the why. That is to say, why poets write poetry. Why men and women read it and respond to it. That would be an excursion beyond psychology into the springs of life of which I am not capable. I shall try to talk as lucidly as I can about the tiny area of the how of which I know anything. And then this is, this is the bit that really got me. 
I think poetry is written mostly for pleasure, by which I mean the pleasure of pain, horror, anguish, and awe, as well as the pleasure of beauty, music, and the act of living. I must write for myself and speak for myself, and that is why writing poetry is still, I think, a pleasure out of hell. pleasure out of hell. I read that and I thought, I, I kind of get it at a gut level, but I don't, I don't think I can explain what he means by that. So from there, the essay gets pretty bitchy. <laughs> Evan Jones, as I said, really doesn't like his contemporaries or his forebears. He he gets pretty distracted and a little bit confusing. He rips Slessor's work to shreds, mostly. Uh, he doesn't like Douglas Stewart. He has an incredible description of A.D. Hope. Uh, let me see if I can find this. Yeah, so talking about A.D. Hope, he says, He was at one time apparently quite a polished Georgian, and at another a quite remarkably slipshod post-Eliot and Auden modernist. Like, what a dismissal. That's so brutal. Uh, he goes on to rip apart Macaulay, Harold Stewart. Uh, he touches a little bit on Angry Penguins, the Ginny Warabacks. He really only seems to like Francis Webb and Judith Wright. <laughs> they escape, but everybody else that he mentions is like, look, is this even worth remembering? I don't know. Let's forget about it. That's his his survey of Australian poetry, 1920 to 1960. But that phrase of Slessor's, a pleasure out of hell, it really stuck with me. And, and when Evan Jones got to this section where he mentioned the poet Rosemary Dobson, basically in passing, it helped me to clarify a little bit what I think Slessor actually meant. So talking about Rosemary Dobson's poetry as a whole, he says generally fine in detail and sometimes very fine, its characteristic starting point is from Miss Dobson's appreciation of painting. And in the long run, the effect of this is to put her human subjects behind glass. Life always seems to be at two removes, and this effect perhaps outweighs one's sense of the perfection of the work. I immediately got that. There is poetry that is very finely wrought, very smart, very clever, very beautiful, very perfect. And when Evan Jones says Rosemary Dobson put her subjects behind glass, that was so helpful. Because at first when Slessor says a pleasure out of hell, I thought he was saying something very simple about how his poems just take difficult experiences and turn them into something he thinks is worthwhile. But that, that comment about putting subjects behind glass gives Slessor's phrase a little bit more depth for me. A pleasure out of hell, a pleasure that has been dragged out of hell, that has brought something onto the page out of that darkness, out of the shadows work where there is no where there isn't that sense of a pane of glass between the reader and the poem 
I feel truly lucky that I know nothing about the idea of hell from a religious perspective. In fact, the older I get and the more I understand about Christianity in particular, I feel just inordinately lucky that I had nothing to do with that as a kid. The closest I get to understanding that idea comes from reading tarot cards. In the tarot, when the devil shows up, it shows up to signify this idea of the shadow side running the show. When I see it in a spread, I think about being in the throes of some kind of addiction, some kind of self-destructive behavior, giving in to something even though it's obviously not a good thing. And I don't think you need to have a religious understanding of hell to bring to mind a moment that has felt like hell in that particular way. Although I do hope that those moments have been few and far between in your life. I know for me, moments when darker impulses have taken over, when I have created a situation in which I feel trapped, that I know that I have made myself, I can definitely think of moments that I would describe as a hell of my own making. The strange part is, and this is very much represented in the archetype of the devil when it shows up in the tarot, is that often these situations start from a place that seems like it's, it's a good and, and fun thing. You know, I can well imagine that some of Norman Lindsay's parties in the 1920s might have started out seeming like it was all fun and games and then by the end of the night or the end of the weekend started to feel a little bit hellish. And there's something in this too about a scene like the one that Evan Jones describes when someone in the social group is elevated to a position of influence that they likely don't deserve and they use that position to create followers and acolytes. In a scene like that, a lot of people can end up feeling trapped and feeling like they can't do what they really want to do or say what they really want to say for fear of offending a particular tastemaker. Slessor was born in 1901, so he's in his 20s when he's interacting with this scene. Of course, we, we know him for the poem Five Bells, which I've spoken about on here a couple of times already. He starts writing Five Bells in 1937. So by that point, he's moved away from that scene, or maybe the scene has collapsed. He doesn't have to write in this way to try to impress this certain person anymore. As I've talked about a bit in the past, Five Bells has always confused me in, in a lot of ways, but most of all because I, I just don't know that I fully understand Slessor's impulse to write this long and complex elegy for this guy, Joe Lynch, who, I don't know, from what I've read, that they weren't even that close. Like, they were kind of friends, but I don't know, it wasn't like some kind of like lifelong love story between them. But then I was thinking about this, this history that Slessor must have had with essentially partying too much. And then the story of how Joe Lynch died, you know, he was on a 
boat in the harbour. He was drunk. He had beer bottles in his pockets. And he said, you know what, I reckon I can swim to shore and jumped off and drowned. I wonder if that's part of the motivation too, just to talk about um, this idea of, of following pleasure and enjoyment to, to the end of the road. But then it also confuses me because it goes so far beyond elegy, this poem. He's, he's playing with so many ideas and people have written about this in much smarter ways, um, playing with, with time and with these symbols. There's that passage from the start of the poem where he says, the harbour floats in the air, the cross hangs upside down in water. The cross being King's Cross, but also, it also suggests some maybe something Christian, but then to me, I also think about the hanged man, another archetype in the tarot. And then later on in the poem where he he talks about Joe Lynch and describes him in these these terms that are, are so mystifying. He says, In Sydney by the spent aquarium flare of penny gaslight on pink wallpaper, we argued about blowing up the world. But you were living backward, so each night you crept a moment closer to the breast. And they were living, all of them, those frames and shapes of flesh that had perplexed your youth. When I read tarot cards for people, which I don't do, you know, I don't do it well, and it's not as if I think that I can predict anybody's future. I just think of it as a way to have kind of a nice, interesting conversation to get away from small talk, essentially. But when I read tarot, I read the reversals as well. I read what the card means when it appears upright and when it appears upside down. When the devil appears reversed, it signifies dealing with the shadow so that you can move past it, move through it. The important thing about that is that it emphasizes that you can't just come up with a 10-point plan or a New Year's resolution to just be better. And this is something I've done so many times and I'm grateful to say I have stopped doing uh, you get a blank sheet of paper and just write down like, here are all the things I'm going to do. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to write more. I'm going to read for an hour a day. I'm going to call my mom. <laughs> you know, like you just you can't just will yourself. You can't just amputate the shadow side. You do have to face it. And thinking about that helps me to understand a little bit more. Slice's phrase: "A pleasure out of hell." I think what I've realized considering that idea is that there is a risk that a poem just replicates darkness. So when we're dealing with the themes that Slessa mentions, pain, horror, anguish, awe, the poem can be swallowed up by these things or, or get weighed down by them. And that diminishes it somehow. I think that is the reason there is so much resistance, or one of the reasons there's so much resistance to the new confessional work coming out of the US at the moment that is also, you know, it's it's fairly present in Australia too. Uh, the resistance to 
even Insta poetry or maybe even to spoken word, there's there's the the rawness there. It's very real. It's very direct. But when it's dealing with pain and anguish and sadness and darkness, it, it can be quite flat, quite one-dimensional. A poem like Five Bells, as I say, it goes way beyond elegy. Even though it is an elegy, it's not, it's not just mournful. But I'm sure you can think of any number of examples of poems that are just weighed down by this subject matter. Again, there are any number of examples of, of new confessional poets who are doing this and who are, I don't think it's going too far to say, like, just exhausting people with that. But I was thinking, okay, well, when when has this happened in the past, though? Like, has there been that kind of movement in Australian poetry in history? And it was weirdly difficult to find an example of that in the various anthologies that I could lay my hands on. But the one poem that did come to mind that I have spoken about before when I was talking about the John Forbes poem, Speed of Pastoral, was Michael Dransfield's poem, Fix. This is kind of what I mean when I'm talking about this, a poem just just replicating darkness. So this is Fix by Michael Dransfield. It is waking in the night, after the theatres and before the milkman, alerted by some signal from the golden drug tapeworm that eats your flesh and drinks your peace. You reach for the needle and busy yourself, preparing the utopia substance in a blackened spoon, held in candle flame. By now your thumb and finger are leathery, being so often burned this way, It hurts much less than withdrawal, and the hand is needed for little else now anyway. Then cordon off the arm with a belt, probe for a vein, send the dream transfusion out on a voyage among your body machinery. Hits you like sleep, sweet, illusory, fast, with a semblance of forever. For a while the fires die down in you, until you die down in the fires. Once you have become a drug addict, you will never want to be anything else. So that's one end of this spectrum that I'm trying to tease out here. And just as I'm sure you can think of other examples of poems that do that, I'm sure you can think of examples too of poems that put the anguish and the pain and the horror behind glass, like Evan Jones says of Rosemary Dobson, that make it too pretty. I have not looked at Rosemary Dobson's work before, but that comment made me go to my anthologies and find a poem of hers, and I thought that this was a pretty good example of what Evan Jones was talking about. You might disagree. You might think that this poem actually is is more affecting than I do. But to me, I think this supports Evan Jones' argument. So this is called Drowned Person. It's it's an Ophelia poem by Rosemary Dobson. After death, fire must consume hair, toenails, large bones, and small, 
and then nothing can be told at all. These bones, with pollen analysis of their strata, provide a limited history. For carbon dating, deduction, and analogy, do not reveal the dark side of the mind, nor betray the heart's deviousness, the body's willfulness. The throbbing pulse, the fever, divided longing, madness. Down, down through the abyss, stratifications can be plotted and set out on graph paper. The following is deduced from existing data and froth flotation of the surrounding clay bed. She was a young woman, gracile, delicate, died by water, was vulnerable and wounded by love, but that's hypothesis, and carried with her to death such weedy trophies as willow, nettles, crow flowers and daisies. If Slessor was a poet who could work with the shadow side, who could write with it rather than just being consumed by it, then Harwood was a master, an absolute master of that. Reading this biography has just helped me to appreciate her work on so many more levels. On the back of the book, there's a quote by Gig Ryan where she says, she describes the book as an accessible recounting of Harwood's crowded and emotionally vertiginous life. Such an incredible way to put it. Like, yeah, seriously, this woman had, her emotional life was spectacularly complicated. <laughs> uh, yeah, she makes me feel like a nun. But um, one of the great things about it is that as I'm reading it, I'm realizing all these poems that I, I read when I went through the selected, preparing to have that conversation with Elijah, uh, all these poems that I dog-eared, and my selected here is just all dog-ears essentially, I know who the poems are about now. They're almost all about a specific person. And I wanted to finish with this longish poem I hope you can bear with me as I go through it, that Gwen Harwood wrote for her friend, sometimes friend, sometimes guy who pissed her off, uh, Vincent Buckley. So once she finally started to get out of Tasmania regularly and visit the mainland and mainland poets started to accept her as the, uh, the master that she was, she got invited to things. She got invited to. She got got invited into the scene. And there was a night when she went to a party, held by someone out of Melbourne University, and she didn't really know anyone there, but she knew Vincent Buckley, who uh, at this point was a, a very heavy drinker, and they got up together and danced to a Beatles song. And uh, they were both tipsy enough that they ended up falling into the fireplace. And Gwen wrote later to a friend of hers that she still had a gigantic bruise um, from where she'd fallen over. But I'm bringing up this poem not just for the gossip, <laughs> but for the fact that I think 
it is an example of a poem that is a pleasure out of hell. It's taking what sounds like a pretty complicated and difficult emotional experience and bringing that onto the page and it is, it feels so immediate to me. It feels so real. It is not behind glass. So this is a poem called Night Flight, which is not dedicated to Vincent Buckley, but it is about Vincent Buckley. And she wrote it apparently on the flight back from Melbourne to Hobart. In the limbo of middle air we cruise, drowned in high cloud between somewhere and somewhere, with the old Electra's loud whine and the seat frames creaking, and this is your captain speaking. Indifferent to night, the god in the machine tells us our speed and height, names crisply the unseen landmarks and towns below. Nothing I need to know. I see those well-known places, like snatches of old song. My house, my children's faces. Late roses left too long in a rosé bottle, dying. Oh, that we too were lying. Oh, that we too were... Christ. What do I want or need? Once, when the world sufficed, I'd sit for hours to read to a sick child or spend evenings, world without end, in children's games or rest like a gentle animal with a baby at my breast watching slow darkness fall, wrapped in earth's tenderness, blessed and with power to bless. How can this body past childbearing, lapse and rage. Spirit's fury at last quicken and wreck the cage of absence. So I stare across wastes of frozen air. Barefooted, grave, you stand in a room pulsing with wine. Take the glass from my hand and put your hand in mine. So like two children playing or two court fools displaying their smiling effigies, to earnest fools, we dance. Careless with joy, I seize this night's extravagance and breathe, as I breathe air, the world of your despair. Empty and light, I burn with rapture as of old. By that heat lightning, learned sorrow has taken hold of this one whom I love. I feel it as we move to Lucy in the sky with diamonds through my skin. Absorb it, eye to eye. Suffer it, drink it in. Clasp it, immediate. Fill with it, bear its weight. Love whom you will. I've known enough of love to know what flesh holds for its own in the molten afterglow. Its gulfs of night, immense, calm, empty, where each sense surrenders all as in some rapture of the deep, where soul and body spin through the grand depths of sleep. So I float for a brief space in the dance, in your embrace. Suffer, my love, as I suffer myself, still flying with Lucy in the sky, among dazzling visions, lying in half-sleep in mid-air between nowhere and nowhere. What's love? but this sustaining violence. Grains of time igniting, burning, raining through absence 
as I climb on stormy air to lie alone in the black sky. This is the truth. My son came home with a drawing and said, showed me this strange looking woman flying around. I said, what is it? He said, it's Lucy in the sky with diamonds. I thought, that's beautiful. I immediately wrote a song about it. The song had gone out, the whole album had been published, and somebody noticed that the, the letters spelt out LSD. And I had no idea about it. And of course, after that, I was checking all the songs to see what the, the letters spelled out. They didn't spell out anything, honestly. I don't know, I'd feel pretty great if I'd written that on a plane. <laughs> the other thing I love about it from the biography is that um, she wrote, she's, she's always writing to this friend of hers, Tony, and uh, so, so everything we get is essentially from these letters to Tony, who was kind of the love of her life, even though they couldn't get married, he was gay, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so she writes to Tony after this trip to Melbourne that she's written she's written these poems uh, that she absolutely can't publish. She can't publish them, absolutely not. And we're pretty sure that one of them is that one, Night Flight, which, you know, it's referencing the exact song that they're dancing to. So, like, it's pretty clear who the person is that she's writing about. But, yeah, she writes to Tony and she says, oh, I can't possibly publish this poem. Um, and then she does, <laughs> like, a year later. <laughs> She's got no restraint. <laughs> She's just such a rat bag. I love her so much. Ugh. Yeah, I went to bed at 7 o'clock last night just so I could keep reading that book. <laughs>